0: How did the U.S. lose the war in Afghanistan? Who bears responsibility? And what has been the human cost? These are the questions asked on Frontline's website advertising the three part documentary series, America and the Taliban. These 54 minute documentaries, which are available for streaming online, were produced and directed by Martin Smith and Marcella Gaviria because of his on-screen appearances Mr. Smith is better known by the public from the other side of the duo here's a conversation with Marcella Gaviria who has produced over 40 hours of programming with Frontline Marcella Gaviria what is this program you were involved in America and the Taliban
1: it really was an effort to pull together 20 years of reporting on the ground from Afghanistan to understand why on earth we stayed there for 20 years. And we wanted to look back and really try to piece together all the different uh, moments of our reporting to understand what were the sort of pivotal moments that led us to to continue um, you know, digging down and doubling down on this war for so long.
0: When did you start working on this series?
1: Uh, we started practically, as you could see, that DC-30 going down the runway with the kids hanging on to that plane. And I just knew that was the only thing I wanted to do. And I turned around to Marty, who's, you know, now in his 70s, who keeps threatening retirement. And he said, I'm retired. And I'm like, I'm going to do this without you. And then about a day later, he's like, "Um, do you need some help? So I'm really happy that he decided to join me on this project, because honestly, I couldn't have done it without him. He's been my reporting partner for 20 years and we've been so committed to covering um this subject for since 9/11 really so
0: in addition to being a co-producer are you now married the two of you
1: yes in fact that is uh, quite a tale <laughs> but we've known each other since 1999 and we got married in 2012 and we've been working together Uh, you know, since the late 90s.
0: Because you said it the way you said it, I can't pass the it's quite a tale. Give us the background on how you two ended up married.
1: Uh, You know, I was his translator in Bogota, Colombia, and he had shown up many years ago to work on a four-part series called Drug Wars. And he and I met at an airport in Bogota, Colombia, and, you know, it really was um the beginning of of quite a professional um relationship he said to me the task at hand is to find the managing cartel and interview him them and i was like well this guy must be crazy i'm not gonna find the managing cartel and interview them so but sure enough we did that together and that was the beginning of a of a professional relationship and then i went to london for a while and he offered me a, a job in new york and i believe we fell in love somewhere in pakistan along the
0: way so so how did you find the managing uh group of the cartel
1: you know it, it was a surprising story because we um No journalist had ever interviewed any of these individuals. So we were staying at a hotel and I managed to see that there was a little card, you know, where you could go rafting or hiking or riding on a a horse. And the horse had an eight stamped on the back, you know, and that's the telltale sign of the managing cartel. And I said, well, that's crazy. They're offering writing lessons on the ranch of the managing cartel. You must take these writing lessons. And that's how actually uh, we got to the cartel. Sheer
0: luck, really. How much did they talk to you on camera?
1: They went on the record, and uh, it was the first time they had ever spoken. And... That series, which I still believe is out there online, is called Drug Wars. And if viewers want to see it, I encourage you to look for it. And you will see the first interviews with the cartel and many other amazing individuals. Um, in, in the sense, you know, historic because it was the first time that the DEA uh, spoke about things that were happening. And then we had the other side telling the same tale. And And interestingly enough, this is really a story, America and the Taliban, where we modeled it after drug wars because we wanted to be able to tell the story from both sides.
0: Where are you from originally?
1: I was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. My mother, though, is Anne Quigley from uh, Pennsylvania. (laughs) And my parents met in college um you know it really my career has been sort of a series of being at the right place at the right time but it's uh it's been quite a ride i must say really incredible life story um and and a lot of it does have to do with that partnership with Martin Smith starting
0: in 1999 So what's the secret ingredient between you two? How have you been able to work together and now be married together for all these years?
1: You know, I am somebody that I think um, is of a different temperament than Marty. He is somebody that worries quite a bit. And I am um, perhaps more easygoing. Uh, He is often you know determined to get certain things but i think i bring emotion to the stories that we tell Uh, and we balance each other really well what we tend to do on a project is we're in the field together we're discussing how to make a film we uh, really try very hard to um, see each story and, and not determine what we're going to tell ahead of time, but just it's the journey of discovery. And then in the edit, often I'll begin the process of working on a certain section and he'll come after and polish after me. So uh, we we have a really good sort of, you know, just chemistry in terms of our professional life and our
0: our our emotional life as well. So... Go back to when the plane came down the runway and people were jumping off and falling off and, and jumping on and falling off. Uh, where were you then, and how do you then say to Frontline, we, we want to do this series, and then how? Wh- what do you have to do in order for them to accept it?
1: Well, it was in many ways a no-brainer. That is a m- historic moment, and we wanted to tell that story. Uh, we went to Frontline, who agreed to give us two hours of television. Uh, we knew we could get into Afghanistan just as all the journalists were leaving. We wanted to come in. It didn't seem to us that that would be very difficult. Uh, we we felt that the Taliban uh, were gloating in their victory. They had a moment there where they were excited to tell how it was that they vanquished a superpower, and they were uh, going to open their doors. A while back, though, one of the Taliban emissaries for the Haqqani Network had reached out to Martin Smith after we had produced a program called the Jihadists, which I think that had caught their attention, because this was a program that was telling the story of the Syrian war from the perspective from a, a completely different perspective, that of a jihadist that had fought during that war, and and I think that actually gave us uh, an opening that nobody else had.
0: So, what was the first thing you do? I mean, I, I'm surprised to hear you say we knew we could get in. Why did you know you could get in besides of the contact with the Hagani network? I mean, well.
1: That... It 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 wasn't limited, I mean, there were journalists working on the ground. We had a good reputation in the area. We had covered the country for twenty years, made you know ten films there. It might have been nine, but around that many and we just felt we had an in um We applied uh to enter the country, got all the permissions and Pretty quickly, it seemed that things would be different, that this would be unlike any other time we had been there. Um, and and it was, because in the past, when we had gone to Afghanistan, we would literally be embedded with the military or travel, traveling around the country, kind of like in a bulletproof car, really unable to get out of the car and do much work. And this time, we had decided that we would travel the length of the country and tell the stories that we found along the way and try to find some of the people that we had interviewed over the years. Um, We had a minder often. The Taliban would insist that we would show up at the Ministry of Information, get our little credentials, and suddenly you'd have a truckload of Taliban fighters that would follow you everywhere you went. Uh, on occasion, it was a pain in the arse, you know, because you'd show up and they'd be like, don't film the poppies, or you can't talk to that person. And so it wasn't comfortable in that sense. But for the most part, we got to see Afghanistan in a way that we had never done before um, and spend more time in places uh, than we had ever done in the past
0: by the way if someone has not seen this three-part series how can they see it now it's because it ran in april
1: well fortunately in this day and age uh everything can be streamed and in the case of frontline you can see it for free you don't have to have anything but a wi-fi connection and just go to frontline.org If you happen to be overseas and it's geo-blocked for some reason, you can go to YouTube and also stream America and the Taliban. And amazingly enough, if you don't wanna do those two things and you wanna pay for it, you can see it on Amazon Prime.
0: (laughs) So go back to the moment in 2021, you're going to Afghanistan. How did you get in? I mean, what physically, from here to there, what, what was your path?
1: Well, at that moment, the airport was pretty much closed. And so the only option really was to get the government of Qatar uh, that has diplomatic relations with the Taliban to um, charter a plane. And that plane is full of NGO workers, diplomats, uh, contractors. And journalists. And we waited two weeks for that plane to leave Qatar. And we entered and landed in Taliban country um, via commercial airways, really. And then just did what, you know, everyone tends to do, which is go directly to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and get your documentation in
0: order. How many people did you take with you?
1: Um, You know, we've been a team of three for about as long as I can remember. And on this occasion, we took um, Scott Anger, who is a co-producer and cameraman and director of photography in this series. And the amazing thing about Scott is he was living in Afghanistan during 9-11. He was one of the few reporters that was based in Kabul. So he knows the story like the back of his hand. And he had, you know, because of his depth of knowledge of Afghanistan really has been a partner on many films.
0: Did you fly into Kabul?
1: Yes, and you land in Kabul airport and it's very interesting because as you're landing, you can see a graveyard of Humvees on the left-hand side. And it is really one of the shocking sights, you know, to just see everything, that we left behind, piled there, you know, as if it were a junkyard.
0: Were they destroyed?
1: Yes. A lot of them looked pretty in bad condition. The Taliban wouldn't, it was interesting. They wouldn't let you go into any military base to film. We begged to get inside the U.S. Embassy because nothing better than a scene of the U.S. Embassy and the empty desks and the... You know, just that is really That would be an epic image To get for any filmmaker or photographer But we had no permission To film inside bases Inside the U.S. Embassy Or the wreckage Uh, Although we managed to sneak Some of those shots along the way But that must have been And I'm just conjecturing here uh, Something that the U.S. And the Taliban agreed along the way
0: What did you notice Besides the Humvees, when you were coming flying uh, into the airport, what else did you notice that might have changed since you were last there?
1: You know, there there was a sense of calm in a way. Um, when you used to travel into Kabul, in particular, the sort of you know, sense that you got is that a bomb could go off at any moment. And and for the first time, just people seemed relaxed. They were, you know, in their usual marketplace. You could see that kind of activity. Um, then again, I felt like perhaps I was seeing less women than I was used to seeing. Um, perhaps a feeling that the women should stay indoors and You know stay out of trouble and then of course the taliban were a very significant presence everywhere so it doesn't take long there's a checkpoint every three or four blocks and a talib figure with his you know long hair and kalashnikov and often you know u.s walkie talkies or whatever they had managed to rummage from uh, the americans and were wearing sort of new boots and new equipment, and then they would sort of look at your paperwork everywhere you went, and then you would be let go another three blocks, and then you'd hit the next roadblock.
0: How do you know if somebody's a member of the Taliban?
1: It's, um, you know, it's not necessarily 100% apparent because they are suddenly wearing U.S. uniforms. You know so it's it's a little bit sort of confusing but often you can tell by the fancy sneakers that they wear Um, you know it's almost like a fashion statement Um, so if you've got sort of cool Converse shoes on you know you're more likely to be a Talib Um, and then there's just the telltale signs because it is sort of you know like like everything in life you know people try to dress like the people around them so they have their black and white turban if they don't have that if they're just foot soldiers then they just have their longer hair and that's sort
0: of indicative I wrote down the names of a bunch of the generals that you talked to for this general David Petraeus Stanley McChrystal John Allen Joseph Patel and Lieutenant General Doug Lute—they're all retired—and I, as I'm watching, I'm thinking, a lot of those guys didn't do that well. They, you know, in the case of Betrayas, he got himself in trouble with the law, and he, and all that. And and I said, why am I listening to them tell me what happened? And therefore, the next question is, how often did you think they were during the wartime were not telling us the truth?
1: it's you know it's very interesting when you're a producer for someone and you've prepared your correspondent to uh, sit down in an interview you don't really know what's going to make them squirm but there is something about uh facial expressions and we have a rule which is you know we're never going to cut a reaction shot that's not accurate to the moment. Um, But, you know, facial expressions say so much, and I think that is the advantage of television over print, where you can get a quote from General Petraeus in the New York Times, but there's nothing like hearing a direct answer of him sort of insisting that an event didn't happen when Martin Smith has all the evidence in front of them that it did happen and he contradicts Martin Smith and then sort of moves his lips in a certain way and the TV captures that moment and the audience can decide for themselves whether that person is lying or not.
0: Stanley McChrystal, uh, general, when he was over there, recommended, as you well know, that we send more troops there. And he said at one point, uh, I think in the report, I don't, I have it somewhere, uh, we are going to win was the name of this report, this 66-page report. Uh, did you ever read that? And did you ever, add, I can't remember if you asked him about the report, but why would he say we are going to win and we have lost so often in these situations?
1: I'll admit I haven't read that report. Um But I think what happens and and what we clearly sort of showed is that. The military pretty much hijacked this war from the politicians. You can spend a lot of time blaming four presidents for being there, but they really. The top brass would come over, surround these presidents and say, our considered opinion is that we can win this war. And they insisted on this and they continued insisting on it, even though the evidence pointed to the contrary. And politicians being politicians often did not want to seem dovish. And, you know, just went along with the program, even though it was pretty evident it wasn't working. Um, And we were fed, the audience was fed all these lies. It was up to Many journalists over the years to point out that things weren't going very well. But very quickly, American audiences got um, bored with the Afghan war. You know, there's only so many years you can open up a, a newspaper and, you know, the, the, the Afghan story would flip from A1 to, you know, D5 or whatever. And, you know, people just didn't notice. In the meantime, you've got thousands of young men and women that are risking their life every day for a project that made no sense.
0: Is there any reaction to your three-part series that particularly touched you?
1: I have gotten incredible letters from the military that have written us to say that somehow the series gave them closure. The fact that we went to some of the places where they were and they fought and they fought in vain for. And to have us sort of recount that tale and go find the villagers of a certain place where they served, that really has touched many. And it's actually been really rewarding of all the films we've made over the 20 years. um, I've never worked on anything that was more rewarding. and, And I hope it shows, you know. It's it was a labor of love. It's uh, a country that I care about deeply. The relationships and friendships I've made over two decades, you know, it's a, a very special place. And and we felt committed to telling this story in fully, and we're very lucky that Frontline gave us the three hours it could have been 6 hours you know i should talk to ken burns and figure out how he does it but but i think we did a i think we did the story some justice and i hope that people tune in and continue the discussion i think this is something that we don't want it to just be a tv event i think it's really this country needs to talk about what happened and not just move on to the next war in ukraine I mean, we can't just continue doing the same thing over and over again and and not learning from the past.
0: One of the clips that jumped out at me watching it was from Josh Earnest, the former press secretary to Barack Obama, and I'll just read the quote. We own up to our mistakes. You obviously put that in there for a reason. Why?
1: Because we don't. We just say we do. Um, And the moment that he's talking about is a massive failure, which was when the US um, had already transitioned out of Afghanistan and they were uh, basically overseeing um, combat operations just from the air, not with boots on the ground. But in 2015, when the Taliban took over Kunduz, which was sort of the beginning of the end, uh, the U.S. attacked uh, Medicine Sons Frontier Hospital in Kunduz and the it was just absolutely devastating cascade of errors. And Obama, President Obama asked forgiveness for this event, but nothing really came out of it. A report that is still classified. You know, so much of this war remains classified. Um, and And what I think the government does is basically classify all the bad news and unclassify the good news and you know it's up to to the press to try to untangle what really happened
0: in places. If you go back to that 2015 incident you talk about I wrote down from your your documentary that the statistics it was a C130 gunship that fired on the hospital 2011, 2011 shells fired 42 people died 14 of them were doctors from the Doctors Without Borders. What did you do to to learn more information about that incident for your documentary?
1: We went to Kunduz and um, I think what we hadn't quite figured out at the time was that this uh This event foreshadowed what would happen many years, five years later, six years later, when the Taliban took over the country. And what we didn't realize is that what was happening on the ground is that the Taliban in 2015 was already taking over large swaths of the country. And our reaction, because we didn't have enough boots on the ground, was to overreact to the information that we were getting. Um, So, you know, it was a series of mistakes. I don't know what the 600 page report says because it's still classified. Uh, Doctors Without Borders doesn't know what the report says because it's still classified. And we spoke to General Votel who said that there were some people that were disciplined, uh, but they chose to take administrative action uh, I don't even know what that means. Does that mean somebody was, uh, you know? Yeah, it, it's just hard to know what that means. But nobody was court-martialed or fired, and therefore, how are we as as citizens supposed to understand how an event like that can happen and and can happen again if we if we don't have any visibility to the mistakes that were made along the way?
0: Explain the symbolism of the lieutenant colonel. I believe you talked to. What was his role in the documentary?
1: Um. There is somebody called Jason Dempsey. Is that who
0: you're referring to? I believe so. Yes, I yeah. didn't. I didn't um, have his name.
1: So this is a voice of um a soldier scholar that we interviewed, somebody that served two rotations in Afghanistan, who spent many years there fighting the good fight. And he became very disillusioned with the war, and I think is one of the most eloquent soldiers to come out of this war, and that he can describe the vents on the ground the people he made, the mistakes that were made along the way, in a way I could never speak to. This was a man that served and saw his comrades die. And he's a powerful force in the film. He opens uh, episode one with his words and he closes the film, I think, in a very eloquent
0: way. How'd you find him?
1: We were reading Um, We wanted to find uh, voices from the military that, you know, could represent um, the view of a soldier that was disillusioned with what had happened, and we felt that he was the most eloquent. So that's how we found him. He sits at the center CNAS, or I'm probably saying that incorrectly, and it's i I'm not sure what the acronym is, but yes, Center for New American Studies.
0: I don't know that you want to uh, opine on this, but going back to the generals, the generals who weren't telling the truth come back to this country and we see them in high-paid jobs— very visible in the country, giving leadership lectures and all this stuff. Does anybody ever pay attention to what they did in one of the most important events in our history? And why do they get so much attention and so much favor uh, after they've made all these mistakes?
1: You know, I I might pitch that as the next film for Frontline because I really want to understand how an organization that, you know, The other day, I learned that the military has more people uh, playing in military bands than we have diplomats across the country, uh, across the world. How is it possible that we have just given a blank check to the Department of Defense and the Pentagon, and that really there is very little oversight and accountability? And I think there's also they need to come forward and talk about what happened for 20 years they are responsible for the outcome of the war they're responsible for every minute of what happened over 20 years and they just can't blame the politicians uh because they were the ones that offered the advice to those politicians all those years and and i think that they've been given a pass by the American public that, you know, just, you know, thank you for your service is what we are all used to saying. And nobody really ever asked the tougher questions like, thank you for your service, but what went wrong? And what are you going to do to make sure it never happens again?
0: Another person you haven't in your documentary who we see a lot of, but he's always angry because no one appears to listen to him. That's John Sopko. For years and years as the Inspector General for Reconstruction in Afghanistan, he keeps telling us, we don't know where the money went, or we do know where the money went, and it was some worthless project that nobody even used. What is your sense of why people don't listen to John Sopko? I'm I'm talking also about the Congress. They never do anything about what he brings forward.
1: Well, you know, Partly it's because it's politically uncomfortable to listen to him. Um, and I think partly because it's now a cultural of we have an inspector general, he puts out a report, nobody pays attention to the report, we move on, you know? So I I, I wish there were more people like him out there. I wish that, uh, you know, Um, he had a bigger uh, microphone um, and could speak, reach a bigger audience. I think that's where journalists play a a big role, where we can at least um, allow a man that has spent 20 years understanding all the failures to speak up and say, this was a disgrace, and I'm ashamed to be an American. Those were his words.
0: Your husband Martin Smith used a figure you can tell me the exact figure two point three or four trillion dollars that was in that we've lost in that uh, operation. I saw some analysis somewhere they said that twenty years from now it'll be seven trillion because of all the money it costs to take care of the veterans and everything that were involved. What did you learn about money
1: well that I think I, I might be right on this uh, but perhaps I need to be fact checked but I think it's going to be sixteen trillion dollars by the time you add all the, the the loans that we took to be able to pay for this war. So when we're looking right now at uh, you know the U.S. defaulting on the debt ceiling and and like trying to figure out how we're going to pay things going forward and the possibility that we may not have Social Security and Medicaid and all sorts of things. You know, these wars cost the taxpayer close to $16 trillion when you look really at the implications of what all these loans were. That's insane. You know, why did we stay for 20 years? Why was it that we went from defeating al-Qaeda into suddenly al-Qaeda is actually the Taliban and then into let's do nation building raised expectations of every little girl in Afghanistan that we will stay there forever, and then suddenly leave the country uh, after we promised and insisted to the Afghans that supported us for all these years that we would stand by their side no matter what. That was also a lie.
0: What did you find from people you know in Afghanistan Uh, their attitude about the United States now that we pulled out?
1: You know, I'm surprised that they're not angrier at us. It's like they can tell the difference between uh, a blonde Westerner and uh, wanting to ask some questions to a person in military fatigues, and they are very angry at those people that that were there that walked their uh you know land holding uh Kalishnakov's committing so many mistakes along the way from you know supposedly precision strikes um and i'm not saying that all of these mistakes were made on purpose i'm just saying that uh, perhaps we made him too many, t- too many mistakes and no hard questions were asked along the way as to how operations were being conducted or why we were killing so many civilians. But I think that the, the great majority of the Afghans that I've met along the way still admire America and still hope to be able to evacuate and come settle in America. And, and that they understand that, you know, the, U- the U.S. and the citizens of this country were trying to help and that, unfortunately, this war really kind of got um, hijacked by, by all these other agents that, you know, had different opinions about
0: where things should go. Were you able to contact Hamid Karzai or Af Ghani? Uh, the presidents, um, and why didn't they talk to you?
1: Um, Hamid Karzai was somebody that uh, Martin Smith sat in his living room for several hours and he agreed to speak to us on camera. But the condition was he could not be in a program that would have any editing. So it would just be one hour of Martin Smith talking to Hamid Karzai. Well, that's not what we do. We, we we didn't agree to those conditions because why would he have the opportunity to sit in front of our cameras and have those rules and not anybody else? Um, Ashraf Ghani did not want to participate and we tried and tried and tried. We spoke to many of his closest aides and we did sit with his right-hand man, who I think for all intents purposes told us the truth in a way that ashraf ghani would have never spoken um you know the same way so i think we got his version of events
0: where are the two of them
1: um Hamid karzai uh lives in the same villa that he grew up in in, in afghanistan uh he's in kabul most of the time On occasion, he can leave the country. All of this is done with the blessing of the Taliban. And Ashraf uh, Ghani at the moment lives in Dubai, but I don't know if he's uh, changed locations recently, but I believe he's in Dubai at
0: the moment. There were stories at the end of the war that he took a lot of money out with him. Do you have any idea whether that was true or whether Karzai has taken a lot of money from this? Because one of the things that you're Documentaries say is that there was an enormous amount of corruption on the part of the Afghan government and people that worked there.
1: I don't know with any certainty. Hamdullah um, Mohib, who was Ghani's right-hand man, said that they took two hundred thousand dollars cash with them from the petty safe bank situation inside their uh, the equivalent of their Oval Office. And that does seem like a lot of money, but if you think about it, it's a cash economy in Afghanistan. So clearly, the the president would have a fair amount of cash on hand to be able to deal with his everyday-to-day activities. And that's what was in his office, and that's what they took on the helicopter on their way to Tajikistan. Um, as far as how much money he took over the years, your guess is as good as mine but i presume it was a fair amount um but i don't know you know i shouldn't be presuming if i'm a journalist i I, until i have evidence i i can't say really and um and the same holds for karzai but there are many stories about both of them um and there are many stories about um the political class so even if it wasn't um, Ghani or Karzai that benefited directly from all these uh, contracts, certainly family members did, and there's been a lot of reporting on that. And
0: This is a little bit out of context, but you just might know something. When Zawari was taken out by a drone in Kabul, the report from the United States was they didn't kill, it had no collateral problems with that nobody else was killed do you have any idea if that's accurate
1: all i know is that it was one of those crazy new drones that chopped them up into little pieces and that is you know the the new era of of the way we will conduct these wars going forward we didn't have boots on the ground but there was enough information uh from some mole or god knows what and the intelligence was that Zawahiri was in the house of a close aide to Sirajdin Hakani, the Minister of Interior, and um, they felt certain that they would find him and they attacked. And, and this isn't the first time I've heard this. Along the way, when we were in Afghanistan, we would hear about these precision strikes that were taking out certain members and there were no other media to cover these events and we had no access so it's all unverifiable unfortunately
0: so the fact that he was there though does that say that after 20 years of war the al-qaeda head was right there in kabul so did did uh, did he still have the clout in Al-Qaeda? And there, did you see any evidence of Al-Qaeda in the country?
1: We didn't see any evidence. It's not like you bump into foreign fighters that are speaking, you know, Arabic or anything like that. But, um, you know, it, it's certainly well known that the Haqqanis and Al-Qaeda have had a close alliance for many years. Um we met with members of the Haqqani uh, clan and, and their leaders. And um, when we were there, Christiane Amanpour, uh interviewed Surajadeen Hakani. Um, it's interesting; she didn't have a simultaneous translator with her, so you know it it was an inscrutable interview. But what you do know is that um, the Hakani's. We're hosting the man that was number two after bin Laden, number one after bin Laden was killed, and he was, you know, living in one of their houses. That's a direct contravention to everything that was agreed to by the Taliban and America for us to leave. So there you have it.
0: Were you with Martin Smith when he went there in 2010?
1: Um, Yes. No, I was there in 2009 for the making of Obama's war and subsequently several times. But I did not... The the You're talking about when he's embedded in 2010 in...
0: uh. Well, the main reason for the question was you all went back this time to see people that you hadn't seen for all those years to find out what they thought. What was that experience like and how did you do it?
1: Well, um... That was sort of a miracle of of driving, I must say, you know, what people don't understand is how vast this country is, how bad the infrastructure is. So we drove 10 hours from Kabul to Lashkar Gah, got ourselves a little permit. There's a whole scene in the film where we're convincing the Taliban to let us head further south to the place where Martin Smith was embedded in 2009. I wasn't embedded then. Um, I was in in Kabul at the time. Um, And uh, when we got the permission to head down to uh, the little town of Miemposte that I think we've immortalized in this film, it's a town with like population 100 or something. It's another four or five hour drive. And once you get there, uh, which is just a hellish drive. You arrive, and then the Taliban say, basically, you've got to leave by sundown, and then you have to drive five hours back to Lashkarga and do the whole thing again the next day. So it was a lot of time sucking dust, as they say. And um, we we were glad we did that. It was really interesting because those villagers remembered word for word what the soldiers had told them and we had captured on tape all those years earlier, which we just couldn't get over. You know, it, it, it really stuck with them and it stuck with us. And, and so that was the alchemy of television, to, to go back to places and find the same people and, and watch it all again.
0: So how many times did you go to Afghanistan after we left in order to get this series?
1: We were there twice since the Taliban takeover. We were there for about six weeks in November. They took over August 15th of 2021. And we went back in the spring, April and May of 2022. And, you know, I hope we go back again sometime because there's a lot that is happening in that country and there's very little attention being placed to, to, you know, what's going on since. Um, You know, there's talk of it becoming a place that harbors terrorists again. Is that true or not? We don't know. Of course, it's a place where so many millions of little girls are now unable to go to school when will they be able to go to school we don't know and then there's all the revenge killings from all the people that we left behind that had special immigrant visas to come to america that are now in hiding and there's many reports of them being uh hunted down and killed and you know that's something that we should be paying attention to because those are people that served for America, that trans- were our translators that, you know, gave up years of their life for this war, and we've left them.
0: I've heard you say someplace that you were treated uh, as a second-class person by putting you away from a discussions, putting you over in the corner and all that. Explain how often that happened, and what was your reaction on the scene?
1: Well... Um, As only female in the group traveling, you know, you have to always be respectful of people's culture and customs. I don't arrive in Afghanistan and assume that they have to accept me as as I would expect to be accepted in any other Western country. So it's not like I become defiant and take off my headscarf and insist on being in a meeting. I just don't think that's appropriate. Um, if they asked me not to be part of uh, the the group presentation or enter room, then I wouldn't. Sometimes I would say, can I sit somewhere else? And so I would sit away from the group, but I could still listen in to what was happening. And I would say it happened 75% of the time uh where you know the men would say no we don't want any women listening in on this conversation and it was annoying as could be you know but um but I'm not an activist I'm I'm a journalist I, and I'm I'm there to observe but I have my partners that are able to do it for me and you know it it you've got to be respectful of people's culture no matter what
0: what's the reason do you think that they are so uh I wasn't what the word would be so uh putting up so much effort to keep women down what's the what's the point of it
1: you know is it fear is it ignorance i they they actually believe and and this is kind of amazing to me they actually believe that, you know, it all began with Adam and Eve, and that Eve is to blame. And, you know, you'll hear people tell you this. And so uh you come out understanding that this is sort of a deep-seated religious ethos that just believes that women are second-class citizens that are there to serve men and they belong in the house cooking and dealing with the animals and providing children and they have no reason to be educated or to be part of society in a meaningful way. What's really interesting is that there are two groups within the Taliban, the Kandahari, which is the southern clan and the Haqqanis, which is the eastern clan, the Haqqanis who are well known as being the most uh, incredible fighters, the ones that really, you know, put the muscle behind the war to win. They are progressive and they believe in women's education. And the Kandaharis are the ones that really are adopting a very, I would say, strange version of Islam because there's no other country that, from Muslim country that treats women this way. And interestingly enough, the Haqqanis have lost this battle at the moment. It's the Kandaharis that are determining the future of Afghanistan and imposing their views of how the country should be run. And I hear rumors that the Haqqanis are very upset that they're the ones that won the war for the Kandaharis, and yet they're not able to impose their own vision for the country.
0: As you traveled around, how often did you see something that Americans built, or you saw a base that had been abandoned, and how often did you get the feeling that there was a ghost town all over because of the many bases that we had?
1: I think the film gives you a sense of that. We try to not just have sort of your experts and archival footage, but to also make it a road trip for three hours so that you can get a palpable feeling of what it's like to be in Afghanistan and everywhere you go, just the landscape dotted with these you know, empty bases. And it used to be that these bases had the American flag and now all you see everywhere you go are, white flags, with a Taliban white flag, which is with a, the the writing on it, which is, you know, God is great and there is no God but God. And that is what every flag
0: holds. Do they believe that?
1: They do. I mean, I, I think one thing that sort of I was impressed upon or, or, or that really kind of stunned me was You know they fought for 20 years to have the country that they want to have and they don't really care what my opinion or your opinion is about this they want to have an islamic republic of afghanistan that forbids women from learning or working and that's the country that they want they want a country where people don't smoke hookahs or gather in cafes or listen to music or dance. And they don't really care if the world thinks that is good or bad. They won the war and that's what they want.
0: Can you buy a drink in a bar anywhere in Afghanistan? No. No.
1: Um, There are people that will smuggle a bottle of something, but, you know, it's you know, it's quite I wouldn't take that risk.
0: But, you know, some people do. Do they smoke?
1: Um, You don't see people smoking, really. You on occasion. I mean, even we had a scene that we cut out for time, but the hookah bar uh, owners of of Afghanistan are up in arms because. You can't even smoke a hookah, which doesn't even have any um, nicotine in it. You know, it's just sort of flavored hot air or whatever it is, you know. So, um, yeah, it's it's they're they're very strict about the rules and the more the, the way the country should conduct themselves.
0: Because you've been there so many times, can you go to a, a housing area? where you can point and say these houses are here because of the money they got from the United States through the war, and they built these fancy houses?
1: You know, the, I actually do regret. Uh, we have this aerial uh, footage that we somehow didn't end up including in the final cut of the film because you had to get it to time. But, you know, Kabul, at least, is in parts a glistering beautiful city you know with sky rises and fancy malls and there is a sense that progress did come to this country it's not just all sort of you know uh, uh, a country from the dark ages with mud huts no there was visible progress and uh, who knows what will happen to the people whose Hopes and aspirations were lifted under 20 years of occupation that now have to live under an occupied country run by the Taliban.
0: You talked earlier about how you got in uh, to the country on eventually on a commercial airliner out of the Middle East. Has that changed over the last two years since you first got there and after August of 2021?
1: Uh, there are two airlines that you can take into Kabul. Um, you can take Cam air uh, which is a regional little uh, air air carrier and there's Ariana Airlines and they have daily flights from dubai um, and I think pretty much anybody could enter Afghanistan. The question is would they allow you to do any work? Um, You know, a lot of young journalists ask me, I'd like to go to Kabul and I'm like, absolutely go, just be aware that you're not going to be undercover. They have spies everywhere, you know, so you can't just go underneath the radar and go unnoticed. In fact, that would be dangerous. The best thing is just to say, I'm here to do this job and and this is what I want to cover and, you know, get the right permission.
0: Can you give us an idea of what this all cost you to produce?
1: Um, I think my boss would ask me to decline (laughs) answering that question. But to be honest, it was not enough money. And uh, in fact, the two of us did not take much pay for quite a while just to make it happen. So... It's a high-value production, but it's actually a labor of love. And we wanted to tell this story. And we are so happy we did.
0: What is Rain Media?
1: Uh, Rain Media is an independent production company. I happen to now own it, which is hilarious. Um, And so... The man that I began working for uh, in 1999 is now my employee, and I hope he continues being that for a long
0: time. Why do you all live in the Catskills?
1: Um, Well, I was kidnapped by Marty to come (laughs) and live here. But during the pandemic, we made the move to the Catskills, and I'm now a country bumpkin, and I, I do like it. Everybody knows my name. Right now I'm sitting in an office on the corner of Pleasant and Main, and it's Pleasant.
0: So what's next?
1: I don't know. Do you have an idea?
0: <laughs> you can do the military <clears throat> wrap up. Give us the inside story on, on, uh, on what we think of the military and why they so often promise us we're winning and we don't.
1: I, I think that's what I want to do. Let's see if they hear me at Frontline
0: help me again, Marcela Gav- Gaviria. Gaviria Gaviria, I can't get the right emphasis. I
1: know, Gaviria. it's really hard it's yeah. Marcela Gaviria
0: Oh, but, there you go
1: Yeah, I was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia, but now I'm quite an American, having lived here
0: for over 20 years so. Are you an American citizen?
1: I am, my mom uh, by birth is an American she's Irish-American, that's why I don't well, they look the part of a Colombian but my sisters look just like my dad and they uh, they speak with a Spanish accent and everything. So
0: <laughs> once again you can stream this you can find it on YouTube you can find it on the PBS or the frontline uh, website if they want if you want to watch the 354 minute documentaries, have I got that right?
1: Yes, each of them is 52 minutes. You don't have to watch them in all one go. And if you want to watch them in 10-minute increments, you know, uh, just hopefully you'll get to the end because it pays off, I think.
0: Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast.
1: Please rate and review Book Notes Plus and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.